episode 21 of the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Sam Gregory, joined as always by Tom Warbow. And this week our guest is the father of Football Weekly, senior sports writer at The Guardian, and uh, analytics aficionado, Sean Engel. So Sean, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you got into all of this and how Football Weekly came about? Sure, that's two, oh, that's two quite long questions. Uh, <laughs> first of all, thanks for inviting me on. Um, I guess with the analytics side, I've always been interested with uh, data in football. In fact, rather sadly, um, during the 1990 World Cup, I had to do uh, a GCSE maths project, and I did it on the World Cup. So, I, you know, it was very rudimentary, but as many statistics and analysis I could find back then, you know, I did a, you know, a GCSE maths product. Um, and, and I guess, you know, I, I edited for a long time at The Guardian, and I went back to writing in 2013 when I was given a column and as a columnist, you're always trying to write something a little bit different um, and you're not just necessarily going to write what everyone else writes. And I was getting more interested in in football analytics. I'd read you know, bloggers like Ted Knutson, um, lots of others, you know, you, you know the, the same names that you've read. And uh, I kind of thought, well, actually, no one is really doing this. And, and I, I'd, I'd had lots of conversations with people like Duncan Alexandra Opta anyway, because we often did, did deals and contracts, etc. So it kind of felt like a natural progression. This was an area that, that clubs were interested in, that was being written about in the blogosphere that I was interested in, and was also a little bit different. So that's you know, that's that part. Um, as for Football Weekly, I mean, that goes all the way back to uh, 2006. Um, I mean, a decade ago, really, there wasn't really that much like Football Weekly out there. On the one hand, you had, you had shows like uh, Soccer AM, which was run by Tim Lovejoy, which is very, very kind of laddish, kind of very kind of post-Euro 96, you know, lager, lager, football, football. And then you had, you know, programs like Match of the Day that were quite po-faced and, you know, perfectly decent, but and it just sort of felt like there was a, it was quite a big gap there. Um, and uh, podcasts were just emerging as well. And we just thought, well, what, you know, James Richardson is funny, he's smart, he, you know, he's written, uh, he'd written for The Guardian before then, and it just sort of felt like a, an obvious fit. The Guardian should be doing a football co- uh, podcast, and it should be intelligent, it should be witty, and it should have people like Barry Glendening and James Richardson on it. So that's how it came about. I didn't know it had been going 10 years. That's, uh, that's quite surprising. Yeah, it's it's staggering. I mean, kind of, you know, I turned 40 uh, last year, and it kind of it frightens me that, <laughs> yeah, I've been at The Guardian uh, since 2000, and then the podcast has been going since 2006. I think on the second or third episode, I was at the uh, 2006 World Cup and uh, I was bitten by a dog. I was having dinner with Marina Hyde and Jonathan Wilson and Kevin McCarrow, who's then football correspondent the Guardian, and we were in Baden-Baden with the England team. And I just, you know, I just left, and this, you know, this huge dog just came out and bit me on the ass. Um, but you know, kind of, you know, that was yeah, it was a long way, long way. But I, I ended up getting a letter from uh, the dog owner a few weeks later, apologising and. Uh, saying that normally he's a very sweet dog, but you know, he's, he's, uh, he's fancy to my backside for some reason. But anyway, that's a, that's a, a tangent. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Reining it back in from dog biting <laughs> stories. Um, go, so, I mean, some of your work recently involved the guys at 21st Club, and uh, there was a piece last week with uh, Simon Gleave as well, sort of looking at the amount of players that a team uses and how, you know, how that affects their sort of success over a season. What's the sort of response that you get for your analytic-based pieces, considering it's you know you're one of the few more senior sports writers who's really adopted this, uh, you know, at a massive, uh, you know, newspaper. Um, I mean, the short answer is, I guess it depends. I mean, some people are fascinated, uh, some are suspicious. 
I think some I suspect are bewildered and think, you know, what is, you know, expected goals, what's this, what's that, and uh, and they probably turn away. Um, I think it depends partly on the piece as well. I mean, earlier this year I travelled to Denmark to look how FC Michelin were, uh, you know, were doing and, 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 and how they used analytics, and that seems to get a pretty decent response. Again, there's one or two people a little poop of the whole thing. Um, other pieces where I perhaps look at how Raheem Sterling... Uh, compared at 20 to other great players, you know, in terms of um, goals per 90, assists per 90, that I think had a lot of people saying, hang on a second, how can you really compare, you know, 20's too young. But actually, when you speak to a lot of very smart people, they say, actually, there's, there's, there is a reasonable correlation. If you're pretty good at 20, there's every chance that you you, you will be pretty good uh, you know, at 23 and 25 and 27. So, uh, but that was kind of steered out a little bit. Maybe that was a little bit too... Uh, offbeat for some people so it depends on the piece but I think gradually and slowly it's uh, you know people are getting more in, in, interested in this and it helps us shows that match they are showing things now like goals per 90 which they weren't doing a couple of years ago so it's becoming part of the conversation and clearly when you've got Arsene Wenger talking about expected goals as well it, again it shows it's slowly entering the mainstream one of the questions we got from Twitter was uh, addressing sort of this divide whether it's perceived or a real divide that's happened in the media over the past, it's been amplified, I guess, over the past few uh, months and between the sort of analytics side and the real football men side. And we were wondering if you got any sort of grief from the rest of the traditional media for being one of the more sympathetic people out there in the analytics movement. And I, I don't directly, but I, I don't go to games every single weekend now. Um, sort of back when I sort of started out, you know, I, I generally go to like the worst Premier League game or you know the best Championship game, and kind of so you get to see all these real football men. Um, there is a I, I, clearly there is a divide because there's some people that think it's, it's Emperor's New Clothes, um, you know, and, and those. I mean, the, you know, the journalists that have been around for twenty, thirty years and, and, and know lots of people in the game and have contacts. Um, for them, it's about getting stories. It's about, you know, transfer news. It's about, uh, you know, basically news. And they kind of see this as well, you know, is, you know, our, our club's really using this stuff to make a difference. And, you know, they have a point in some respects, you know, it's important that what you read in a lot of papers, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's good stuff. It sells. People want to read it. Um, it doesn't help, of course, that a lot of clubs won't necessarily talk about what they're doing about analytics and maybe those that are sceptical are those old school football managers that will then be still speaking to journalists and say, oh, this is a load of tosh. So it's, I mean, there is a divide there, but I think slowly perhaps people are not as sceptical, certainly of some of the basic. They, people, I think, understand now that, you know, one shot from, you know, inside the box isn't the same as another. People understand now that, you know, someone might have scored 10 goals in 10 games, but it's a, you know that figure looks a lot better if you know they for whatever reason they'd only played you know forty five minutes in each of those games. You know I think slowly there's a there's a there's a, a greater willingness to dig a small bit deeper, even if only for some people it, you know it's it's only just scratching the surface. And when it comes to writing pieces like these, do you sort of go with the analytical slant first and have like an idea of uh, you know what you like to write and then approach? Uh, you know, external sources like Omar at uh, 21st Club Incitement, or is it more the other way around? Do you see the work that those guys are doing, and you, do you think there's a you know there's a story there that you can you know tell to your readers? Um, normally, it's mostly based on on the on the news agenda. So I'm looking at things and thinking, well, what's what's around at the moment that perhaps other pe- either other people aren't writing about, or if they are, perhaps a British newspaper isn't writing about. 
So, um, I mean, that's generally the first thing I'm doing. Now, now sometimes, you know, Simon Gleaver are very nice, Pete, uh, or did a very nice presentation at Pro last year about, you know, age benefits. And you talked about it on, on your show last week. Um, and, and, and afterwards I came to and said, look, I'd like to write about that. And that was fine. And, and a couple of times I've spoken to Omar, actually about FC Mitchell as well. I mean, you know, about a year ago and we were kind of bouncing things off. He said, look, you know, Mitchell are interesting him and, and Blake Worcester who, who's sort of co-founder of 21st club. And, but as a general rule, I, what happens is I, I come up with what I think are a couple of ideas and then I will, I mean, it helps. The Guardian has a relationship with Opta. So I can go to Opta and say, look, I'm quite interested in this. Does the, you know, this is what I think is happening. Does the data support it? Or can you look at tracking data for X or Y? And sometimes it shows nothing. And actually my hunch is bad. But often there's something more there and you can then think, you know, does this tell a story? And sometimes then I will, you know, I'll speak to one, an analyst and say, look, this is what data show me. What do you think? Do you think this is strong enough to write a column about? And people like, you know, Omar and uh, Ted Knutson in the past and uh, Simon and, and, and others have been incredibly generous with their time. And I'll often say, you know, yeah, that's not a bad idea. You should, you know, maybe think about this as well. So, uh, you know, I certainly, you know, bounce ideas off them and, and I'm very, very grateful that, you know, they're, they're a sounding board. And I'm curious, too, because most of your articles don't include data or aren't data journalism driven. But when you do do it, you do it well. So I'm curious if the approach is different when you're writing something that's going to be data driven and is going to include statistics or whatnot that that is that a different approach you take to those articles than you would just the more standard piece or investigative piece and i've been working on a lot with the um iaaf scandal that's been going on recently so i'm curious what the approach is between these two and i think the most important thing always and this applies to i think any journalist is it's always think of your reader. And um, I remember when, actually my very first job was with EMAP, which was a massive sort of magazine publishing house back in the 90s. And you know, I went for an interview with the editorial director and he was going, you know, what's the most important thing for you as a journalist? And I'd just come out of journalism college and I said, you know, speed and accuracy, because that's what had been hammered into us. And he said, yeah, that's important. You've got to get those. But the most important thing is always think of your reader. At any point, they could be bored, they could stop reading. And so you know your reader and write for them. And Given that, you know, my pieces don't only go online, they go in the newspaper. And the newspaper, the average audience at The Guardian uh, is about 55, 56. So therefore, perhaps they are not the natural constituency for, for data stories. So when I do write about them, uh, you, you have to be quite careful that you're trying to, you know, almost take them by the hand and explain the process. So, so because it's in the paper, then it's quite hard to then be plastering graphs of, you know, or, or tables or... Or, or anything like that so that's perhaps why you know they're not everywhere in the pieces I write but I do you know I am I do try and use data sensibly and use it well but I'm also wary and, and careful carefully minded to realize that actually you know the paper audience is a bit different the web audience and I've got to kind of almost be think thoughtful of both of them when I, when I write those kind of data pieces where I think with stuff like the IAAF it's much more about proper hard news you know I have a lot of contacts in in track and field you know Again, you you know, you, there's a daily sort of blitz, particularly when a news story is breaking, that you'll be phoning them up, asking what they know, bouncing ideas off them, um, or sometimes just writing what you think based on, you know, based on when you see Dick Pound talk about Seb Coe. So that's a very different piece. It's much more classic old school journalism. While the data stuff, it's very much, you know, you go into Opta, you, you know, bouncing ideas off other people. And, and then also when you write it, being very, very careful to, you know, 
that people are still going to be following what you say because at any point, if you throw in, say, PDO without referencing it or you throw in expected goals without referencing it or, you know, um, or whatever else, they could just say, what's this, and stop. So you've got to be very careful when you're working for a national newspaper to, um, you know, to keep your reader on side all the time. I guess there's sort of a similar battle, in, not really a battle, but there's sort of schools of working in journalism currently where you've got the sort of new school of data journalism, the people like John Byrne Murdoch who use like really data-heavy pieces, and then yourself, the more sort of traditional telling stories, and actually, you know, like you're saying, you've got to have a, a solid story and you've got to think of your reader and things like that. Do you think that's sort of the way things will be by now and there won't be sort of one dominating school of journalism to speak? Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it kind of there are some people that are going to want transfer gossip. There are some people that are going to want match reports. You know, people aren't just going to want they want lots of different things. I think what you know, what John what John does is brilliant. And um, you know, uh, when you read sort of stats bomb, when you read your stuff, when you listen to your podcast, you're picking up different things. And um, so I think I think there's football is a big enough sport now that there is enough there for whatever you know approach you are you are doing there will be some interest in it um i i i I almost think analytics now in terms of broadsheets is probably where football tactics was around the time jonathan wilson wrote inverted the pyramid so it's it's kind of there and hitting the mainstream but not yet you know widely accepted and like i i do think maybe in the next sort of five ten years uh it will it will become a little bit more mainstream than it is now so before we move on to actually talking about some of the specifics you've been writing about for the past few weeks, I wanted to ask if you had any advice for young writers, either who want to get into journalism or data journalism or any sort of sports journalism out there. Um, I mean, God, there's, there, there are, there are, there's so many bits of advice. I think one would be read and look and, 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 and observe as much as possible. So, you know, if, if you want to be a football writer, read the best football writers Read, read tabloid writers, read broadsheet writers, look at how they structure things, look at how they write things. Um, and that's important. You know, you've, if you want to be a writer, you have to write. Uh, you know, and, and that's a, it's a sort of fundamental tool of the job. Uh, there's a very good book, which you can probably buy on Amazon for about a penny now, which is called Put It in Writing by a guy called John Whale, who I think used to work for The Times in the 80s. And it's, yeah, it's 20, 25 years old, but it's a very kind of good book on writing which sort of takes a sort of passage from a famous book and then dissects it and it's you know that's that i would definitely recommend that as well so that's one thing um i think the second thing increasingly given the market has changed in the old days you know you would you'd either leave school at 60 and then do your journalism qualifications and work on a local paper and work your way up or you go to uni and perhaps you know do a postgraduate course and then again work your way up you know journalism is it, it, it's the roots aren't as obvious now so I would, if if I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, whatever, I would be looking at, well, where are there niches out there? And I think analytics is actually a really good niche because you've seen, um, you know, you've seen people that have, that have written, uh, whether it's, uh, or even tactics as well. You've seen people like Michael Cox, who's, you know, blog on tactics, now writes for ESPN, writes for The Guardian. Seen analytics, you know, you've got quite a lot of the Stats Bomb crew. They've either joined, um, you know, clubs or, you know, the case of, of James uh, York, he is now writing for ESPN Insider. You guys have your own consultancy. So you know, developing a niche is also important. Um, and But I think as a general rule, try and learn as much as possible. Pester people, 
you know, for advice, uh, try and get work experience, or if not, you know, try and, and also write yourself. I mean, that's again, you know, you want to go into analytics, set up a blog, you know, come up with an idea and, 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 and then ask Twitter, ask you guys, ask me what, what I think about it. And, uh, you know, it might be a bit rough and ready at first, but you will learn. Um, I mean, again, look at someone like Omar Chowdhury, again, which we've talked about before. He had his own blog, um, obviously incredibly bright and has worked his way up, you know, via, Prozone and, and, and 21st Club and so on. Yeah, that's all really, really good advice and probably stuff that myself and Sam have, have you know, used, uh, you know, building up analytics FC and things like that. So, uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so going on to some of the stuff you've written recently, I guess we can all agree the biggest surprise this season in the Premier League has been Leicester City. Um, would you, you know, is this potentially the, one of the biggest surprises in Premier League history, modern Premier League history anyway? Oh, completely. I mean, they were 1,500 to 1 to win the title, 151 to finish in the top four, you know, and now they're, they're odds on to do so. So, I mean, clearly it's a massive surprise. I mean, we've have had teams that, you know, are, are, I guess you look at kind of Newcastle 2011-12, that was a surprise, they finished fifth. Um, you know, Hull were doing well, um, before, until Christmas a few years ago, and then they, they dropped way down to I think seventeenth. So there's been, there's, you know, West Bromwich Albion, I think, and obviously Southampton last year. But I, it, we ha- I don't think we have had a team like, in Premier League history that has been you know, right up there for so long. So clearly, if, you know, I don't think we've had 150 one shot come off in you know in any league position or any betting market, you know, especially over the Premier League. Um, since its inception, uh, so yeah, it's it, you know it's huge. One thing that's been talked about a lot with these, especially with clubs like Leicester and Stokes, another one that comes up a lot, is how the TV deal has impacted the ability of this like traditionally smaller teams to compete with the top teams. And I think you wrote recently about how Napoli earns less revenue than most of the teams in the bottom half of the Premier League, and I think potentially all of them. And obviously, they're having a very good season this year in Syria. So I'm wondering how much you think that plays into Leicester being where they are and the idea that these smaller teams can quickly move up the table. Um, I think it has to play a part because uh, you wouldn't, you know, a few years ago, Leicester wouldn't be able to keep hold of all these these players um, just because you know, football football clubs weren't making money and it was just the accepted you know, players wanted to move on and so on. But I don't think it's just that. I think we have to... And I probably, when I wrote a piece, didn't give. You know, I think Claudio Ranieri deserves a lot of credit. You know, he's he's you know he's changed players. I mean, you look last season. You know, Mares wasn't playing all the time. Vardy wasn't playing up front. Uh, you know, he's he's been clever. You know, and he's and you know, even at the start of this season, Leicester were conceding a lot of goals. Um, that's now changed. You know, he's you know he's 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 changed their style, so they are very very sort of you know there's no they squeeze the space at the back and they you know they hit team, teams on the break. So I think he he deserves lots of credit. Um, but but yeah, uh, I, when you look at the other thing that's interesting with Leicester is that when we talked about Newcastle earlier, we talked about Hull, we talked. I think West Brom, another team that did surprised us a, a couple of years ago. You know, when you speak to the you know the expected goals guys, they do say yes. While Leicester have been a little bit lucky, they're conceding uh, less goals than you would expect and scoring a few more. It's it's not you know the, the, it's not extreme. You know they're. They are there. You know, when I this is, I spoke to to Omar before the um before the Stoke game, you know, and he was saying they've scored eleven point three percent of their non penalty shots. You know, and based on their location of their attempts, you know, typicals would, would team would convert ten point five percent. 
you know, in defence, they were conceding 8.1%, I think, um, versus an expectation of 9.2%. So they're, they're not huge disparities. So the Leicester are playing pretty well. And the way things are looking now, um, you know, it would be somewhat of a surprise if they didn't finish in the top four. So not to put you on the spot, but where do they finish this year? Well, I mean, I, 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 I think the next three games are quite important. Um I mean, this almost people were saying the same about you know their the run in, in December and they got through that. But clearly, when you're playing Liverpool, then you're playing um, Manchester City, when you're playing Arsenal, uh, you know if you if you stumble there and and say you only pick up a point or you even lose all three games and, and United that are ten points behind are able to put a run together, then that could close. Um, but interestingly, after that, I think let's have a run of five games in a row where they play teams that are currently tenth or below. So if they were able to Nick will win the draw for the next three games. I think you know. I, I think it would almost be a certainty that they will uh, be top four because you can't really see United the way they're playing at the moment make up that, that gap. I mean, obviously these things there are caveats, there are exceptions. What happens if one of the you know, the, the front you know, the front players gets injured and so on, and, and, and maybe you know the, the the small amount of luck Leicester have had will, will reverse and suddenly things go against them. But as things stand, ten points is ten points. So moving on to another topic, which you've written a lot about and has arguably been the biggest story in the sports world over the past few weeks, has been the um, tennis match-fixing report that came out from BBC and BuzzFeed. And one thing that we found interesting is that it was very data-heavy. There's a lot of data analysis. So can you give, first off, just an overview of what's been happening in the tennis world over the past few weeks? Sure. Um, so on the eve of the Australian Open, um, BuzzFeed and, and the BBC released a 9,000-word piece that sort of talks about widespread match-fixing uh, in, quote-unquote, the upper echelons on the men's tennis. So that was the starting point. Um, however, the, the piece itself was a little bit unclear um, because it, it, it clearly amassed evidence from lots of different sources. Some of these were lists, but I think from bookmakers or maybe even on the internet of, of players suspected to have cheated. But also Buzzfield... Um, data uh, person had gone through 27,000 matches since uh, 2009 I think and what he'd done is he'd looked at uh, the opening price of a match and then the closing price and then he'd seen and then um, and how much that had changed from from the opening price to the closing price uh, I think seven different bookmakers and then he was able to look at 15 players where quite consistently their price changed quite a lot and that led BuzzFeed to um, claim that they, they had found these list of 15 players who had regularly, quote-unquote, regularly lost matches in which heavily lopsided betting appeared to substantially shift the odds, dash, a red flag for possible match-fixing. So they didn't say they were match-fixing, but um, you know, they clearly sort of indicated it. Now, the problem was they, um, they released... Um, they they, they anonymised their data, but they... But, smart tennis people were able to see quite quickly who these players were. And one of those was Leighton Hewitt. Now, there's been no suspicion that Hewitt, who's won Grand Slam uh, titles in Wimbledon and, and the Australian Open, has, has ever match-fixed. And uh, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy called Ian Dorwood, who's a quite a smart blogger. He used to be a professional, um, well, for bookmakers now, as a professional tennis gambler. And he went through, I think, eight of Hewitt's matches and was able to say, actually, yes, there'd been changes in price movements, but they were all explainable. So it might have been, for example, that Hewitt was coming off a break. Uh, perhaps he was playing on a surface like clay where it wasn't as good. 
And actually, sometimes those people that model tennis matches, the professional gamblers, are a bit more savvy with than, than the bookmakers. That sometimes you know, bookmakers will automate their prices. So actually, there was no evidence that um, he had done anything wrong. And it perhaps showed up the limits of just using data to point the finger. Now, when you speak to um, you know data, um, integ- so integrity experts and security experts, they say that actually this isn't a bad first filter because what it, you know clearly you know if you're combing through twenty nine thousand matches, you can't um, you know you can't do it all by hand. You need you know some way of, sort of whittling down a shortlist. But after that, you then need to look a lot closer. You it's only the first stage. Typically, you also need to look at um, was there a lot of money placed on the match? Because clearly, uh, you know, if you've got a match fix, you've got to want to make money from it. And if, if, you know, if you go to Betfair or you go to Pinnacles and you see actually very little was put on it, probably wasn't, you know, you know sometimes you can swing the market, you know, you know, with a £500 bet. You know, clearly if there's millions and millions of pounds on it, that might be another red flag. And the third thing is that there are often changes either in the side markets or in play. So without boring your listeners too much, um, one fairly well-known player you know, I'm aware of that it's been quite common for him to be a favourite from a match or as though his price to have, have, um, have gone out from you know, heavily odds on to close to evens. But yeah, he will still be favourite in the first set market. And what he is uh, you know, alleged to be doing is losing the first set deliberately but then winning um, the match. But, but, but clearly, but sometimes even though on Betfair, you'll see a player that's favourite for the match isn't favourite to win the first set. And that shouldn't happen. I mean, that's just basic betting. So um, BuzzFeed, I mean, I think it was an issue. They brought up an issue that was worth talking about because clearly, particularly when you speak to people and you know, when it comes to the lower levels of the game, so away from the ATP Tour and into the Challengers and the Futures Tour, there is a lot of suspicions because players earn very little money uh, through playing. So they're, you know, it, all the, it, it's, it's almost like, you know, a pet put in a Petri dish, you know, with bacteria in it in the right temperatures, you know, bad stuff will happen, you know, bad things will grow. But I think BuzzFeed's research didn't quite, you know, set out, you know, all that it claimed it did. Um, so I've waffled on there, but that gives you a kind of a, you know, a sort of a, a starting point. And I'm happy to talk more about, you know, tennis and betting or whatever else because I've spent a lot of time speaking to people over the last couple of weeks about it. With the sort of data release that BuzzFeed and, and you know, BBC did, uh, like you were saying, they, they sort of tried to code out players' names and make it a bit more, uh, make it slightly anonymised and obviously people were able to uh, decipher that and see that Leighton Hewitt was one of these players. Yeah, if this sort of analysis continues, that opens a, a whole new sort of door for journalism in terms of you know checking that data is of good quality when you're releasing it and that you've properly anonymized it uh you know things things like that that's like a totally new thing that we haven't seen before in journalism do you think that that's going to be like this might be a new growing area where you know journalists and uh, you know sites release masses of data for people to look at themselves or do you think this is sort of a one-off because there's like an interesting story uh, you know, a really interesting story with the tennis thing, and it's not going to happen again for a while. Um, no, I, th- I, I mean there are a couple of things here. One, you need you need the the turnover in a sport to be significant, or, you know, betting turnover that is, uh, and you need obviously the way uh, you know a site like Odds Portal to be able to investigate it. So, but I certainly don't see why perhaps you couldn't look at you know golf or although it's hard to do because it's a tournament, it's not head to head. You really need a head to head sport. Um, but 
I, you know, I think the idea itself of using data to to find stories is, is clearly a very good one, but it also perhaps highlights the limits and the dangers. Um, and good investigative journalism is really hard. I mean, so often I've had good stories that, you know, I've been told by impeccable sources that it's actually quite hard to stand up. So, and clearly BuzzFeed has spent a lot of time here trying to prove things. And I think actually probably their other argument, which is away from their own data mining, where they've spoken to lots of people around the sport and whistleblowers who said, actually, the sport isn't doing enough to catch cheats. That is probably stronger than their their kind of the newer fangled data stuff, ironically. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't be using data more and we shouldn't be trying to find stories through data because clearly that's uh, anyone, you know, as a journalist, you know, whether it's, a, you know, great contact or whether it's using data, anything you can do to either get stories or tell a story, you know, we should be doing. You know, one thing that Leighton Hewitt specifically talked about was that he said, I, I don't know what, I feel like I don't know what to do in this situation because I'm sort of attacking a ghost of a story because he couldn't acknowledge the fact he doesn't want to go in there and say, oh yeah, that's me who you're accusing of match fixing, but I didn't do it. And he, I mean, he admitted to sort of just being left in the middle of this, which made you sort of think, okay, is this a, a responsible use of data and journalism and B, what should players do? I mean, it would almost have been easier for Leighton Hewitt if his name had been on there and he could have gone through each individual match and said, okay, here we go. Here's why this happened here. I clearly, as I got older, the odds spread started to get larger and there were these weird results. So do you think that we should sort of have more firm rules with this is what's allowed as a data sort of, if you're making these accusations with data, this is what's allowed, this isn't, this is where you have to name people, this is where you can't name people. Do we need more specific guidelines for this? Um, well, I mean, really, it often boils down to libel and you know the, you know, the legal, the law. So if there was a reason why BuzzFeed didn't name these names. You know, if you read um, Heidi Blake, who's a BuzzFeed, uh, BuzzFeed sorry, journalist's um, letter to the Tennis Integrity Unit, you know, there's a sentence in there which says something like, you know, we, we know that this, our data... Um, analysis cannot be proved to show match, fix, match fixing. So BuzzFeed knew that, which is why they didn't name the names. If they did name the names, they would be open to uh, being sued for defamation. Um, it's quite an interesting one, this, though, because clearly, I mean, Buzz, uh, BuzzFeed did have uh, Hugh on one of their lists. So I don't know whether, you know, if you had have gone and said, you know, I'm going to sue you for defamation, it would have been quite interesting to see what uh, would have happened Um so rules, I don't think so. I think it's really, we all, as journalists, we all operate with, with rules that are up there already. And they are, you know, if, it's, if, if you're writing something about anyone, you know, make sure you, know, you are legally protected. So, you know, if you get a story from one side, you then have to put it to that person. You then and try and get their side of the story. Uh, you know, if, if you don't have proof of something uh, and, it, and it could potentially defame them, then you're on tricky ground. So the rules were in place. It's just a case of having, you know, applying them, you know, in this instance when it comes to data. And I think BuzzFeed were, you know, there was the reason why they didn't name the names because I think when I speak to people involved in the game, some of those players on the list, there are suspicions about clearly. So they probably would have been on safer ground with a few, but it's it's one thing having suspicious betting um, data. It's another to, to absolutely confirm um you know you need the money trail you want really you want bank accounts that are doing funny things you want to you know 
bookmakers that are saying yes this account from 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 Greece or the Balkans did you know spent this amount of money and we we've noticed this account you know is is associated with you know with these other matches which we also think were suspicious you need things like that uh, to build up a case um but another thing that was quite interesting actually when it comes to match fixing when i speak to people the the burden of proof when it comes to accusing someone of match fixing you know this is from the tennis authorities is lower than um than when you go to court say uh, for a criminal case so actually the tennis integrity unit could perhaps one well, you know the experts i speak to could have been a bit bolder in trying to take some of these people with you know suspicious about you know down and and, and ban them or or whatever else but they for whatever reason they they haven't done so but you know they you didn't need to don't need to prove beyond reasonable doubt as you would in the criminal uh, case that these guys were um were match fixing I think one of the, well, for me, the most interesting conclusion to this is going to be the question opens up is, you know, how do we go about fixing this in tennis? Is there a way where, you know, we tie, I think what Andy Murray was saying is we tie the sort of, uh, you know, uh, gamblers, not the gamblers, sorry, the bookies to the sport itself. Um, And I think you, part of what you wrote was saying, you know, people were saying that this, you know, may paint tennis in a bad light. And it's not like uh, when Queens was sponsored by Stella Artois, everyone was getting trashed at Queens. It's like, you know, it's just the thing that uh, increases transparency in the sport. And also, you know, do we need to tie um, law enforcement to the sport more so they can have access to, uh, you know, uh, investigating when there are, betting patterns that are suspicious or when players that might be you know losing games throwing games whether they should be investigated things like that so do you think there's going to be like a concrete uh, solution to this and do you think it could be you know something that takes quite a long time because i know you've spoken to quite a few uh, senior people in different areas about you know potential solutions to this in your piece yeah i mean it's without boring your reader sen- senseless it's a complicated issue because it involves Corporate governance, so therefore, you know, are is your you know athletics authority, is your tennis authority doing everything it can do to uh, you know tackle cheating, whether it's doping or match fixing? So that's the first issue. You know, does it involve independent scrutiny? So, for example, the, the tennis investigative unit that has the you know the, the head of the Grand Slams, the head of the ATP, the head of the WTA, um, and the head of the ITF, I think, are all part of you know, on the board of the tennis integrity unit. So it's, there's no suggestion they've done anything wrong, but clearly there's a conflict of interest if there's match fixing in tennis because it doesn't look good for the sport if it comes out. So that's the whole. There's a whole issue there about you know, you know is corporate governance other rules in place that there. Then we go on to you know, are you know, are, are there systems in place to um to to ensure that you know, more can be done to stop doping or you know in tennis's case stop stop match fixing. Um, it's, but it's it's not an easy, you know, it's, it's not an easy situation. I mean, one of the the kind of ironies of all this, when you speak to people again, integrity units, is the the debate in tennis began because the tennis integrity unit is supposedly failing and then waving through widespread match fixing. But are we sure that's the case? You know, I've spoken to a lot of people who say actually it was miles worse in the early noughties. It was miles worse even up to maybe six seven years ago. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that it can't be improved, but actually, you know, the test integrity unit isn't the worst thing in the world. You know, you know, no one in their right mind would say it hasn't impacted positively on the sport in the last, you know, I think it was set up in 2008. 
be, you know, because actually it's gone that you don't have fewer match fi- matches fixed now on the ATP tour. Um, you know, so it's not perfect, but you know, we, we might be asking where are the equivalent of the tennis integrity units for other sports? Um, other people are talking about, you know, when you speak to some people involved, they say actually what you need is a global sort of police force. I wrote about this event today. So you need a kind of a, almost a team of untouchables that, you know, you, they would be, mon- you know, match fixing and, and corruption is a global problem. They're, you know, it requires, you know, is it fair on tennis to sort of go in after bad guys, you know, crooks and criminals? Probably not. You need proper. So that's, so that's an interesting theory. The problem with that, of course, is who would run it? You know, and then you, you know, you, and that creates a whole lot of issues. Who would fund it? That's another whole lot of issues. So it's it's complicated. But I think the bottom line is is the bottom line. If if a if, if a sport is seen to be bent, if people aren't trusting the sport, then maybe those that head in the sport will say actually it is worth us investing in, 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 in whatever how we do it to ensure that you know that there isn't corruption, whether it's doping or match fixing in that sport. Yeah, this is obviously a really interesting area and one that I guess tennis has been one of the first to bump into publicly with this use of data to look at match fixing in a, well, with a very public report. And I know there has been a lot of um, studies in football using match fixing data or using match data to try and look for potential match fixing. I'm wondering what you think the future of match fixing studies in football is using this type of data analysis and if it will be in such a public forum like it has been with tennis. Um, I mean, we forget with football, of course, that um, that you know they're always they, these things in football flare up. I mean, I think I mean I remember writing about this three years ago. Um, you know, when there was a big um, there was a big hoo ha about football match fixing, and you know, I wrote at the time. I think there there had been cases of match fixing in Brazil, Greece, Finland, Turkey, Italy, and Germany. You know, and we kind of just you know. We forget, you know, in, in 2011, a court in Bochum, you know, convicted a gang of manipulating more than 300 matches in 12 European countries. You know, the same year, you know, Tampa United were in, indefinitely suspended from the Finnish league after being able to explain why they took £300,000 from a company in Singapore. You know, and remember WikiLeaks, um, you know, they, they published a, a US uh, embassy in Sofia. Uh, you know, um, a cable that said, you know, quote, that today nearly all teams in Bulgaria are owned or connected with organised crime. Allegations of illegal gambling match fixing plagued the league. You know, so it's, um, you know, it, these these things are going on in football. Um, you know, I mean, but and there are similarities with tennis. You know, it's complex to investigate. It's difficult to prove. I think even in football, it could be harder. So player deliberately underperforming. You know, that's not enough. I mean, you know, they could be having a stinker of a game. You know, there needs to be, you know, irrefutable evidence. There needs to be a paper trail. And that's not easy when a lot of the Asian bookmakers, uh, where most bets are placed, they're not, re- you know, regulated. Um, the second problem, of course, is that you, know, you go away from the big leagues. A lot of clubs are financially shaky. A lot of their players are, are treated poorly. You know, those players are paid late. And that creates resentment and it could mean that criminals can take advantage. Um, I mean, when I wrote about this in 2013, I quoted a, a FIFA Pro study and they'd interviewed like over 3,000 players in Eastern Europe. And, and I think they found you know, close to 40% had not received their salaries on time. And 12% have said they'd been asked to manipulate a match. And that figure rose sharply by those that uh, you know, had been paid late. So... It's not a surprise, really. Again, it'd be going back to this petri dish and are the right, you know, the right conditions. If you've got leagues where um, players are, are, are paid poorly, 
they're played late. Uh, you've got and you've got leagues where um, uh, you can bet on, and you know you we know now. I mean, you know Denmark, Norway, Sweden, second division matches. You know we've seen it in, in England even with some of the non-league, you know, way down the reach of the lower league. You can bet on these things. Again, that creates opportunities for the um, you know the professional match fixer to try and influence things. On the other side, of course, uh, if it's done through legal channels, the bookmakers can, and I know they do, flag up to the authorities when they think something suspicious going on. So, um, you know, it's we should not be, um, we should not think that this isn't happening in football because it is. And, um, you know, it, it, whether, it ha- whether it's a year or two years or three years, there will be another explosion where football will have another tennis moment and we'll all run around thinking, well, you know, why aren't we doing more to, to stop it? But as things stand, I think it's predominantly in these smaller leagues where, you know, players are paid less than it's easily done. For, you know, for both sports, um, tennis and football, it just seems that it's such a, a widespread problem that the amount of resources, uh, you know, uh, promised to these areas currently is nowhere near what's required to completely eradicate, you know, match fixing, betting, fixing, etc. from these two sports. And I guess these are going to be problems that are going to be around for a while. Completely. And, and I mean, one of the issues is that you you have the sports saying, actually, this is a criminal problem. So then you have the police, you know, the police should be investigating and the police will turn around and say, well, actually, you know, we are investigating murders and violent crimes, etc. Match fixing is, is low down the list of priorities. And given the amount of money sloshing around sport, I think sport itself has to find a way of uh, finding, you know, addressing security issues and corruption issues. I mean, in many ways you can do this. You know, you, you hear sometimes of a, of a levy on um, TV rights. So when you look at, um, I mean, NBC bought the coverage of the next few Olympics for billions and billions of dollars. Even if it was, you know, half of 1%, that would be an enormous amount to spend on on, on, on good governance in Olympic sports. Look how much was, you know, the Premier, latest Premier League deal. Uh, again, millions of pounds. It wouldn't take that much. For you know, to, for a government to have a levy on that, that again um, would help uh, corruption and match fixing and doping in this country. So, but you're right; it's a it's, it is a tricky issue, and um, whether opportunities, you know, the bad people and bad guys will will operate and, and take advantage of that. So, speaking of corruption in sports, let's move on to athletics, which has probably been. If tennis is the first biggest story in the sports world over the past couple of months, athletics is a close second. And so can you give a little bit of an overview? I know this is a much longer story, but on the uh, doping scandals that have plagued athletics for the past couple of months. Sure. I mean, God, you know, you, you could say this could easily be a, a couple of hours of this. But I mean, the crucial thing, I think, with athletics is it wasn't just the bad guys were corrupt and taking bungs and bribes and millions of dollars. Uh, I mean, we've seen that in FIFA. We've seen that in other sporting organisations. It was they manipulated, you know, what was going on on the field of play on the track by, in some cases, um, extorting money from athletes that were should have been banned for taking drugs. So the most famous case is a Russian marathon runner called Lilia Shubakova. She uh, at one point was the second fastest marathon runner of all time. She'd won the Chicago Marathon three times. She'd run the London Marathon, but before the uh, 2012 Olympics, um, her blood data was way off, highly suspicious. Now, what should have happened was she should have been banned from the sport. Instead, um, Damien Diak, who was the president of the IWF, um, his son, um, 
you know, well, you know, along with a couple of um, guys, senior guys in the Russian athletics, and also incredibly a guy called Gabriel Dolly, who was the head of the IWF's anti-doping. So you know, the most senior, you know, anti-doping official in the whole of athletics. They all colluded to extort, um, you know, four hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars um, from uh, Lily Subakova, and in exchange for her being allowed to compete in London, um, Subakova and her agent, uh, and uh, eventually went to the IWF's ethics commission, which had just been set up in two thousand and fourteen, and so it was an independent thing away from the sport itself, and slowly began the process which ended up with um, you know, a lot of these bad guys being banned from the sport, being exposed, and now they're facing um, you know, uh, trial by the French authorities and well find themselves in prison. So with this doping scandal, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, the, the big names, and there was a whole thing with sort of Paula Radcliffe and, uh, I mean, in cycling as well, Chris Froome talking about sort of releasing blood data uh, and seeing, you know, to publicly so people can see whether they've been uh, doping and cheating or not. And I guess it goes back to, again, like we've looked at in tennis, you've got the, the betting data. You've got in this sport, you've got the, you know, got the blood data or things like that. Um, you know, is this is this the best way to deal with these problems? You know, looking at the data, I guess there's you definitely need a, a lot of a greater, you know, subjective viewpoint of thinking, you know, are these people going to be... Uh, cheating and then you look at the sort of uh, organization the athletic organization that they're sort of with you know are they prone to cheating or do they are, you know are they less i guess it's like regulatory forbearance they're less uh, likely to you know come down on these people hard if they're cheating because they sort of let it slide in favor of good results things like that so do you think that you know data analysis and things like that are the best the best way to go about looking at these problems um there are a couple of issues here one is um for some drugs, such as testosterone, uh, and, uh, there is there is there is a test or there's a series of tests. So if you if you've had way too much, you know, um, synthetic testosterone, and you're and you're tested, and it, the ratio between your testosterone and what's called your EP testosterone is greater than four to one, you are busted. You fail the test. So that it, it's not perfect. But, you know, and, and some athletes argue they have naturally high testosterone because they've been up all night with beautiful women and, and the like. Um, but generally, that, that's how it, how it happens in your own back. With the athlete biological, so with um, EPO, it's much harder. As EPO, um, it can be out of the system very quickly. Um, so what was developed by, uh, by sport um, a decade or so ago, and it kind of came in 2009, was something called an athlete biological passport. And what that did was that looked at blood markers and, and asked, and basically, are these what they should be? Are these in normal range? So you weren't, they, these athletes weren't failing a test. They just had suspicious blood markers. And it's, again, it's based on balance of probability. So, you know, if, if your normal range is something around 70 or 80 and suddenly it's, you know, 140, there's a one in, you know, a million chance that that could be, or whatever it is, that that, that, that could have been achieved naturally. And, and what, athletics and other sports have tried to do is test for blood fairly regularly so again if you have a whole series of, of markers that are, are all over the place and higher than you would much higher than you'd think you know, it can open up a case but it's slightly you know it's been challenged and this whole sunday times blood database from what i understand it was incomplete um 
and it, and 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 it's it's a messy messy situation, but it wasn't as as as, as open and shut as the Sunday Times were, were alleging when it first came out, um, because you know the the, the data they had released uh, leaked to them. What wasn't when I mean, there wasn't every test, it wasn't every example. So therefore, some of the conclusions they drew were perhaps um, you know perhaps over hasty. So looking more specifically at the Olympics coming up in 2016, one other big story that came out, which isn't specifically related to athletics, was that a UK sport released their medal targets for the Olympics, which I think they gave a 47 to 79 medal range, which to me as a statistician looks like a pretty big confidence interval, firstly. And secondly, also sort of as a surprise, 79 would be significantly more than the UK one in London in 2012. So I'm curious what you think of this new expanded target, and if you think that big range they've given themselves as sort of to calm people's expectations ahead of this summer um i mean this is less i mean it's partly to do with analytics but it's a lot to do with politics as well um after london 2012 the nation's on a high uh you know everyone is you know slapping themselves on the back uk sport won as much money as possible so they come up with this medal target uh, which was 66 olympic medals in rio and 121 paralympic medals um, so therefore, they get an extra boost of funding from the government, which they can then hire more people. They can give money to more athletes and more sports. Um, now we know <clears throat> that I think in every every um, every country after the home Olympics, they have they have fallen off. Certainly in the modern era, so it's a mighty ask to you know to be winning more than sixty five medals they got in London twenty twelve. This isn't their final target, and you're right. I mean, it's forty seven and seventy nine is way too too wide. What they are going to do over the next six months, they're going to, they have something which is similar to um, Infostrada's sort of virtual medal index. So that's one of their kind of ways they um, you know, assess where they're going to end up. They also speak to um, the coaches in every sport for a realistic appraisement of where they think they, like how many medals are going to get. And then also they have an independent body that actually analyzes all the scores and results and also comes up with his, well, it's rather um, best guesstimate. And the idea is that in July they will sit down and, and come, you know, with a probably narrower range um, of, of a medal target. But uh, the uh, the guy in charge of this, a guy called um, uh, what's his name, Simon Timpson, who's the director of performance at UK Sport, said that sixty six medals would be there somewhere. I suspect that will be at the higher end. It might be, you know, ambition might be something like fifty five to sixty seven or something. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. At this stage, they, they clearly are downplaying expectations, but that's only because in 2012 they wanted as much money as possible from the government, so it made sense for them to claim they could you know, do even better in Rio and therefore need more funding. Now, I've not read anything up on this, but is there sort of any aspect of the funding side of things in athletics where you know uh, sporting bodies are looking at analytics to sort of boost well not necessarily analytics but this more sort of stats based uh, decision you know data driven data driven decisions um, whereby you know you can make more out of uh, smaller amounts of money so obviously we're, we're pumping well we did pump a lot of money into the olympics in 2012 probably therefore you know the the medals we got reflect the funding that we put in you know are there ways that you can spend less money and still get similar results which i guess brings it nicely back to the sort of football problem where you have a, a big like you said an umbilical relationship between uh, wages and league position is there a similar similar thing in uh, athletics where you have you know sporting body spending and medal halls in olympics 
I think that's that's a really interesting question. Clearly, I mean, I think one of the a good example of this actually is away from the Summer Olympics, and you go to the, the Winter Olympics. You know, for years Britain didn't do very well. We don't have much snow here, as everyone knows. But over the last couple of Olympics, we have started to win medals, to be finishing top eights, and I think the reason for that is simple. We, we now fund. Uh, our athletes, our winter sport athletes, are much higher level than we ever did. So you know, these these guys have spent, you know, the winter, the summer months in Australia. Um, so they're still in the snow. They, you know, they can spend most of their time at camps. Uh, so therefore, they, you know, they are on the on the snow as much as any of their rivals, and therefore their performances are, are going to improve. They're, they're full time athletes. So there is a, an obvious correlation, I think, between the amount you spend and the amount of medals you win. Um, clearly, that can't last forever. You know, if we threw the whole national budget, you know, you know, we, you know, our long distance program, you know, apart from my Farrow, we'd still end up getting beaten by Kenyans and Ethiopians. Um, I, I, I'm not people in in those Olympic sports. They do do some analytical work. Not a great deal is spoken about it. Uh, I know the English Institute of Sport has some very smart people there. Um, but I guess if if you're in a sport, say like hockey, or which you know, perhaps you there are fewer performance analysis, well, there are fewer analytics people about. Actually, your edge might be even greater than, than it would be, say, in football. Um, so therefore, why would you talk about it? So it's an interesting one. But I think as a as a, a couple of you know, broad conclusion, clearly the amount of money you spend is is going to impact on the number of medals you win. And, and um, while you know, the nation was, you know. You know, enjoyed London 2012. You know, we, when people say that you know, they, they, there's an element of financial doping to this because you know, the amount of extra money that's been spent on British sport since the National Lottery came in in what 94, 95, you know, it's huge, and that clearly plays you know an enormous part in in the success of of British sport. I think that's a nice place to wrap it up for today. So uh, before you head out, is there anything else you want to plug that you're working on or that you have coming up in the next few weeks? I mean, nothing especially. I mean, I, I very much work kind of, you know, day to day, week to week. Um, but, you know, there'll be there'll be hopefully some good stories in the pipeline, you know, both football and elsewhere. And, and I guess the other thing is you can, you know, follow me at The Guardian or on Twitter where I'm just at, at Sean Engel. Well, thanks for coming on. It's uh, It's been a fun show and it's good to get some other sports in here. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Cheers.